Hi, Proof listeners. Now, if you're looking for new bingeable shows, then check out Acorn TV. They stream award-winning TV series and movies from the UK, Ireland, Australia, and beyond. Now, if, like me, you like mysteries and good period costumes and sets, then be sure to check out the new season of Murdoch Mysteries. One bite of this and he fell ill? Sir, he positively keeled over. I mean, the whole contest had to be canceled. Proof listeners can try Acorn TV for free for 30 days. Just go to acorn.tv and use promo code PROOF. That's A-C-O-R-N TV, code P-R-O-O-F, to get your first 30 days for free. After that, it's just $5.99 a month. Hi there. I've got great news. You never have to make the decision between sending flowers or delicious chocolates as a gift ever again. With Edible, you can send it all. Every order is sent direct from your local store. Edible has everything. Fresh fruit arrangements, handcrafted baked goods, and boxes of decadent chocolates. There's something for every occasion and budget. And it gets better. You can get same-day delivery or free next-day delivery. Visit edible.com or your local Edible store and get $10 off your order when you use the code PROOF at checkout. That's E-D-I-B-L-E dot offer code PROOF. We talk a lot about seasonality in the food world, and that's for very good reason. If I pick up a tomato from the grocery store and I had to dig my car out from a snowbank in order to get to said grocery store, well, I'm pretty sure that that's not going to be the best tomato I've ever had. So what are my options if I, say, want to make a marinara sauce? I could pick up some subpar tomatoes from the produce section, those bouncy pinkish-red orbs that slice just like styrofoam, or I could head over to the canned goods aisle and pick up a couple of tins of whole tomatoes. Now, considering that canned tomatoes are usually of excellent quality, they're juicy, they're sweet, often better than fresh, that's a pretty easy choice. I've done this a million times without considering the marvel of the moment. I mean, I can crack open a can of tomatoes in the dead of winter, make a sauce, and really enjoy the end result. Those cans, they can sit on my pantry shelf for months, waiting to be used. They never change. And that's kind of a big deal. So whom exactly do I have to thank for the can, this most miraculous of mundane technologies? Why aren't we singing the praises of the inventor of this most ubiquitous of kitchen products? Was there a man with a plan behind the can. I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Do you love delicious seafood? Are you mindful of seafood sustainability? Well, Sitka Salmon Shares delivers premium wild-caught seafood right to your door. From high-quality Alaskan king salmon to Pacific cod and Dungeness crab, the fish is caught by a collective of trusted small boat fishermen who use methods that respect the limits of our oceans. 
Don't know how to cook the fish? Well, Sitka Salmon Shares has got you covered. Visit SitkaSalmonShares.com for recipes and cooking tips and to purchase your monthly share of the harvest. Proof listeners get $25 off the first month of a premium Sitka seafood share if you go to SitkaSalmonShares.com slash proof. Sitka Salmon Shares, premium wild-caught seafood delivered. Life was messy, and life still is messy, but it'd be a lot messier if canned foods didn't exist. And the person you have to thank? A French man named Nicolas Appert. This is journalist Aria Bracci. Okay, what was that thing you mentioned about the pies at America's Test Kitchen, Bridget? Yeah, I was discussing pumpkin pie with my producer, Yumi, and we were talking about how you don't really need to scoop out a fresh pumpkin and roast it to make pie. You can grab a can of pumpkin puree. And maybe not for a pie, but you can also get a can of carrots, mushrooms, beans, like I used this week. I also had this very fancy cranberry juice that I really liked. Yet the things we turn to for information mostly don't mention the person behind this invention. We have that classic image of Isaac Newton and the falling apples when we think of the laws of motion. But who was Nicholas Appert? We don't get to know. His story and ideas are missing from all sorts of things. Class curricula, historical movies, even Jeopardy. Sidebar, I love Jeopardy. And I'm familiar enough with the topics that come up to say that Appert, unlike loads of other historical figures, isn't prioritized as knowledge. Like, how many times has Alexander the Great been mentioned on Jeopardy? So many. Actually, I checked. It's getting close to 300. And it was actually you, Bridget, who confirmed that Appert had been mentioned on Jeopardy, right? How many times? I think twice. That's it. Okay. There's a chance that Jeopardy isn't your litmus test of choice. That's fine. Um, So let me show you something else instead. Bridget, I'm going to send you a link, and I want you to open it and describe what you're seeing. Okay. All right, let me click on this. It says, Clocher et bust. Oh, now it translated from French to English. So I am on... A French TripAdvisor site, and it's translated to English. It says, Bell Tower and Bust of Nicolas Appert. So I'm looking at a picture. Um, it's taken at an angle, and it's of this really big clock tower. No, it's a bell tower. And they were trying to fit the whole thing into the picture, it looks like. So they're holding their camera at an angle. And in the front, there's a little pillar <laughs> with a statuette on it. I mean, it almost looks like a knickknack at this point. It's definitely not a grand statue. Is that Nicholas Appert there? That's him. That is that is the monument honoring his legacy. And unfortunately, this is really the only relatively contemporary thing that I could find about him on the internet. And it was on France's TripAdvisor site, which means I almost didn't find it at all. I also came close to not finding this story at all, had I not stumbled upon a specific book, A Bite-Sized History of France. It just looked fun, like something I'd like to read. The book is about the role of food in French culture, war, and memory. There's a hunk of cheese on the cover, and the chapters have names like The Vegetarian Heresy and Bread, Peace, and Liberty, The Socialist Baguette. 
So I email one of the authors, Jenny Mitchell, and we start talking. And when I ask her about the kind of work that she's done, she gives me this list. And at the very bottom is the name Nicholas Appair. Maybe this is not a very flashy story, she wrote, but something about it is very interesting to me. This man died with almost no money and was buried in an unmarked grave. All this despite, quote, completely transforming the way the entire human race ate, end quote. So I'm, I'm talking to Jenny about this, and she says that she and her co-author, Stefan, who's also her husband, wrote about Appert in this book in A Bite-Sized History of France. The chapter was called, again, completely in contrast with the size of his legacy, The Man Who Abolished the Seasons. <laughs> Jeez. And yet, again, I had never heard of him. So that's it, I tell her, I'm sold. I wanted to get an interview on the books right away, but she said I should really talk to Stefan. Hello, I'm Stefan Henault. Stefan, as you might have guessed, is from France, and he did most of the research for the chapter on Appair. And since the documents they found were in French, he was the one who translated them. Oh, and also, he was a student at Nicolas Appair High School. Whoa. I mean, really? Yeah, really. It's a school in a place called Orvu, which is on the western coast of France. And my next thought is something like, oh, so it must be that Appair just isn't known here in the United States. It's because I'm not French. That's why I haven't heard of him. I expected Stefan to tell me about Appair's status in France. You know, a big fan club, plenty of mentions in history books, only unknown in the U.S. But when I get a hold of Stefan and I ask him to recount how Appair came on his radar, he says... It's not as if the school even taught us who Nicolas Appert was. I think it was mostly my father who then told me who he was. But there was nothing from the school, which is weird. I mean, there wasn't even a plague or anything like that, which would have explained like, oh, this is why your high school is named after him. Weird. So no, even there in France, he's not really getting any attention. It bugged Stefan, like it bugged me, that there was hardly anything written about Appert. Stefan kept him in the back of his mind for years, and he did his own research, until he and Jenny were eventually able to write about him themselves. While we're talking, he mentions there's this one book that's really good. He found it after he and Jenny published their book, which made finding it even stranger. He came across it after decades of hearing no Appert discourse, and then several months of deliberately searching for some. And it was in, of all places, a secondhand bookstore in Germany. The book is a comprehensive biography of Nicholas Appert, the whole book, solely dedicated to him. On one hand, Stefan finds it strange that he'd never heard of it, considering how, like I said, he just researched Appert pretty thoroughly. But on the other hand, he says, Maybe it's just what happens when you wrote about Nicolas Appert. Just like Appert's place in history, this book was elusive. Such a shame, too, because it's really well written, Stefan says. The author's wife must be proud, considering she's related to Appert. Wait, what? Did you ask him to show you the book? I think I, like, screamed at, that he show me it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I asked him to show me the book. So he goes and gets it, and he flips it over and is reading through it for a second. And then he says, oh, would you look at that? There's an email address. <laughs> 
Okay, now let's hold on for a second. Let me make sure that I'm getting what's happening here because it sounds like you went from knowing nothing about Aper to getting a taste and finding several sources with several connections to the subject. And now you're telling me that you have found an actual descendant of Aper? Normally, I would take offense to that, but yes, I knew nothing. (laughs) I think I'm a pretty good journalist, and I can dive very deep on the internet to track people down, but I think there's something else going on here. It appears that this man had been so lost to history that it was only when someone had a personal reason to look into him that more got dug up. And these someones were over in the UK. Hello, I'm Malcolm Summers. And, of course, his wife. Hello, I'm Cathy Summers, and I'm the great-great-great-great-granddaughter of Nicolas Appert. As it turns out, though, even if you're family, it's not a hot topic. We'd gone to visit a cousin who lives just into Germany, and they'd been looking into some family history. I think it was after our evening meal, and um, Arnold... My cousin's husband, who mentioned that he'd done this research and went down into the cellar and fished out these bits of paper, and we thought, wow. (laughs) They were related to this man called Nicholas Appert, whom, frankly, I'd never heard of. And they told me that he'd invented the process for preserving food. At the time they got this news, Malcolm was a teacher, and that was how he thought of himself, not as a historian. But there are undeniable overlaps. He's just a curious guy. And when he learned about this mysterious connection, he thought... I hadn't heard of someone that I think has done something that is quite remarkable. Yes, you'd think it's something you'd want to make a a big deal of. And in fact, when I, when, in fact, usually Mal says to people who my great-great-great-grandfather was, they say, oh, well, why aren't you rich then, Cathy? It's a valid question. You'd think that someone, arguably the father of food preservation, a man who impacted how we eat food even today would have left a mark on his descendants at least. Yet, even his own family hadn't remembered him. This led Malcolm to want to dig up more. And dig up more he did. Appé was born in uh, 1749 in Chalon-en-Champagne. Pardon my very not-French pronunciation, but Chalon-en-Champagne is a city in France just east of Paris. To a family that were not poor because they owned an inn, but they were definitely working class in the sense that they had to work very hard to make ends meet. Appert himself didn't have much formal schooling, but what he did have was a real apprenticeship in the home, in the inn. Early on, I think, he found he was a very good cook. So he was an apprentice through his teenage years, and, and by around about 1766 or so, he was a cook. He was working at other places. He worked at um, the most prestigious hotel in Chalon called the Pomme d'Or as a cook and chef by the time he was 17. There's an account of a former king of Poland eating Appert's food at La Pomme d'Or and loving it. So the story goes, he prepared this unparalleled onion soup. And this is quite a feat because in late 18th and early 19th century France, you had to be really creative. Basically, everything that you cooked had to be local or in season or both. 
And if you wanted something from a bit down the road, maybe off-season, something that grows in the fall, not the spring, you better hope that it was heavily salted. Otherwise, it'd be long gone. Now, sugar, just like salt, was a popular preservative at the time. And both, as we know now, are pretty harmful to your health in large quantities. Yeah, and Appert, even at the time, noted in a book he wrote that... Salted provisions and, above all, their bad qualities has caused the loss of more life at sea than shipwrecks and naval engagements. Those on land didn't have the best options either. Preserving food, at least in the way it was practiced at the time, fundamentally altered it. In texture, in flavor, nobody would be more familiar or more frustrated with this than a chef. And on a more serious note, when food doesn't last, people don't eat. Famine was intimately familiar for people at that time. Here's Malcolm again. He must have come across this problem of having to keep food as safe for as long as possible all the time. And he put his mind then to to working out what he could do to improve that situation. Having spent my days in the pantries, the breweries, storehouses, and cellars of champagne, as well as the shops, manufactories, and warehouse of confectioner, distillers, and grocers, I have been able to avail myself in the process of the number of advantages. Appert never really went to school, but he benefited from spending his younger years as a chef. If he hadn't, he might not have thought he was capable of solving what was, at that time, a pretty complicated culinary and humanitarian problem. So he spent years cooking, before he started to experiment with preservation. Though it might have been bubbling through his mind, he didn't start his experiments, though we don't know for certain the date, until he had his premises in Paris. Appert secured some property to open a confectioner shop right in the city. At this point, he's in his 40s and he's doing pretty well for himself, Malcolm says, since his store was located on the Rue des Lombards, which was considered the sweet center of the continent at the time. From there, he started a family and started to get serious about science. He married soon after he got to Paris, Elizabeth, and he had a laboratory set up, which is a very sort of posh name. And we all then have a picture of lots of bottles and Bunsen burners and things. But it was just a place where he experimented. But every spare moment, you can picture this man, every spare moment, beavering away. In documentation Appert kept at the time, this is what he said he was getting up to. He would take a literal champagne bottle, fill it with food, and cork it really, really tightly. His description of this is actually very funny. I place the full bottle upon the bottle boot already mentioned, before which I sit myself. This apparatus is to be supplied with a strong wooden... Basically, what he's doing here is sitting down with the bottle between his legs and taking a bat to whack the cork down farther into the bottle. That would get it tighter than he'd be able to by hand. Once he'd done this pretty aggressive maneuver, he'd put each bottle into its own cloth bag and put all those bags into a giant cauldron filled with water. The bags were to keep everything contained in case any of the bottles happened to break. When everything has been foreseen and prepared, and above all things well-corked, tied, 
and wrapped up in bags, there remained nothing to be done but to apply the preserving principle, that is, heat, to the substance duly arranged, and this is the most easy part of the operation. This preserving principle, which he calls the most easy part of the operation, is actually one of the most crucial. He didn't really have the words or scientific background to articulate this, but preventing potentially harmful bacteria from entering the bottles by corking them was one thing that made the food able to last. The other was killing off the bacteria that might already be there through heat. The contents themselves needed to be cooked before going into the bottles in the first place, since after that point, Apair would be essentially pausing them in time. The way you want to eat asparagus later should be the way you prep it now. Before I put them in bottles or jars, I plunge them into boiling water and afterwards into cold water in order to take away the peculiar sharpness of this vegetable. With the science we know now, this pre-cook also likely jump-started the process of killing bacteria, which he'd then finish up by boiling the bottles themselves. Different bottles needed to boil for different amounts of time. It all depended on the contents. And all that could vary even more, he said, depending on the time of year that the contents were harvested. Once he figured out the timing, he needed the precision of his tools to match the precision of his plan. So he built a system that would release the water from the bottom of the pot and suddenly cut off the boil so that the food wouldn't sit in the heat for longer than necessary. This method is not a vain theory. It's the fruit of reflection, investigation, long attention, and numerous experiments. Malcolm says that in order to land on the most effective numbers and guidelines, Appair would experiment not only with how and when to bottle the food up, but how long to let it sit once he had. Leave them all on his racks, all nicely labeled, for, who knows, two months, three months. You have to be patient in this sort of work. It's no good opening it the week after because you don't know what your results are. When Appair did open them, he tasted the food himself. He apparently never got seriously sick while doing this, which probably helped him stick with it. And remember, Appair was trying to preserve things that would have been unthinkable to eat when they were even a few days past their prime, like cream, like meat. He took those risks because he wanted something that was safe and tested, and that, you know, worked. This is clear in his writing. He also wanted to make something people would actually use. No matter how life-changing or world-saving the innovation could be, it would have to appeal to people's tastes, too. At the time he's trying to do this, Appair has been a chef for decades, so he's well-equipped. One thing he documented trying to preserve was... A matelot of eels, carp, and pike with an addition of sweetbread, mushroom, onions, butter, and anchovies, all dressed in white wine. So Appair knows his way around flavors and nutrition. It's the whole other part of the process, the defying nature part, that's brand new for him when he starts experimenting. But he wants to find out if it could be done. After the break, Appair gets it done. The family farmers at Pete and Jerry's Organics are passionate about raising happy, healthy hens that produce the best eggs. Here's Pete and Jerry's farmer, Judith Klein, of Rockingham County, Virginia. 
We've got scores of hens just outside, just pecking at any little bugs that they can find. And, and my son loves them. Like, he'll go out and walk up to me like, Mom, I want to hold one. Your son's little hands are touching eggs that are going into cartons, that are going across the country. There's got to be something that just feels so, so wonderful about it. It is very rewarding, just overall, taking care of the earth and taking care of our animals. We've got these bright orange yolks, and that just is such a testimony to how much access they have to going outdoors. Speaking of quality eggs, I know you have a family recipe for a blueberry cobbler that calls for using really good eggs. So it's called Mama's Blueberry Cobbler. Think back to something that just brings back the best memories. And this is exactly the feeling I get when I take a bite of this cobbler. Just gives this little crisp bite to the top of it. It feels like love, honestly. Find Judith's family recipe and more about her family farm at PeteAndJerrys.com. That's Pete and G-E-R-R-Y-S dot com. The founder of OXO, Sam Farber's idea for OXO's iconic non-slip grip peeler, was born out of love for his wife, Betsy. Betsy's arthritis made using old-fashioned metal peelers a real struggle, so Sam and Betsy designed a better handle together. And that love still inspires OXO designs today. Karen Schnellwar heads up brand and marketing at OXO. It's the love that we pour into making the products, observing people living their everyday lives. It inspires problems we could solve, needs we could anticipate. OXO kitchen tools made with love. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. Hi, Proof listeners. It's Bridget here. Now, did you ever find that ripe, juicy mango is slipping and sliding all over your cutting board when you're trying to cut into it? Or maybe the mango's just a little too firm. Well, today, my America's Test Kitchen colleague and friend, El Simone Scott, comes to the rescue, and she's going to share some amazing prepping tips with me. Hey there, El. Hey, Bridget. How you doing? I am doing great, but I'd be better if I didn't have to deal with slippery mangoes. I know. So first, you're going to cut a thin slice from the end of the mango so that it sits flat on the counter. That's a good safety tip anytime you're dealing with wobbly food, right? Absolutely. And just to be safe, we're going to hold down the mango firmly if it isn't as ripe. Got it. So next, you're going to rest the mango on the trimmed end and cut off the skin in thin strips from top to bottom. Then you're going to cut down along each side of the flat pit to remove the flesh. And then you can cut the flesh as you desire. All right. Well, easy does it. And thanks, Elle. Go to mango.org slash proof for more tantalizing mango recipes and to learn more about mangoes. Now, back to our story. Up until this point, Appair is able to make progress toward his goal. It's the 1790s, he's in his 40s, and Malcolm says... Because, you know, you could tell Appair's story without mentioning what's happening in France. But that wasn't Appair's life. He was in Paris in the middle of it. All right, so we've hit the late 1700s, and that means we're smack in the middle of the French Revolution. Okay, I'm air-quoting here, but it's when the common people took control of the country. Exactly. 
Appert signed up to be on local patrols. He served as president of his local jurisdiction. But then he was accused of keeping records the wrong way once power shifted. And ultimately, he escaped, was caught, was imprisoned, and then was released once power shifted again. He just couldn't wait to get out. It must have scared him that much to have been part of all that. All the tumult pinballed Appert to the countryside to a small village called Ivry, where he moved with his wife and kids. And he picked up right where he'd left off. Remember the political backdrop, though. It'll become relevant again. But for now, to Ivry. He still had his shop in Paris, but he went to the quiet of the village to carry on his experiments. And fairly soon, made his big breakthrough, really. Fairly soon, he felt he'd cracked it. He was now going big. He was now not just doing it in his laboratory. He wanted to mass produce. He opened a factory in a nearby town, Massey, in 1802. At first glance, that sounds like a big thing. It sounds like Appert's really back on track now. And he's about to launch what is sure to be a life-changing product. The thing that would touch all of our lives, that we hyped up so much at the beginning. Canned food. But as it happens, things started to go downhill. The revolution didn't really throw him off, at least for long. But it disrupted every corner of life, making it an awful time to break into the market. Sadly, he needed a business manager. But he never employed a business manager. He was trying to run it all himself still, in spite of it being a very big business, employing 50, 60, 70 people at various times, depending on the time of year. He had to interest people. And his first thought was actually the Navy, because of preventing scurvy by having fresh food. Now, at this time, Napoleon had recently crowned himself Emperor of France. And all of the conflict that caused meant that the French Navy, they couldn't really get up to much. Exactly. And the value of Appert's preserved food, which he developed specifically with sailors in mind, couldn't reach its full potential. The English Navy barricaded the French Navy in its ports. So when Appert wanted his bottled preserved food to go on board a ship, sadly, the ships couldn't go anywhere for much of the time. So he's just sitting in this entrepreneurial lull for almost a decade, until, Malcolm says... He then decided to do something about it. And what Appert did was essentially ask for a letter of recommendation. There was a group called the Society for the Encouragement of National Industry, and he knew they were interested in innovation, so he took his food to them. And, as Malcolm says, they were blown away by it. They said, we must make this known government will give you a prize of 12,000 francs, which is a huge amount of money. So Appert is already working on his preservation method, but he can see that he's not getting that much traction. And he himself then takes his work to be assessed, at which point the society gives the stamp of approval for his discovery and promises him this big sum of money, one that's eight times the size of an annual pension at that time in France. But... On stipulation... You write it all down in a book. So he did. I then took out the eggs and kept them six months. At the end of that period, I took the eggs out of the jar, put them into cold water, which I set on the fire, and heated it to 75 degrees. 
I found them fit to dip a toast of bread into and as fresh as when I prepared them. And the proof was in the pudding. At the end of two years, this cream was found as fresh as if I prepared the same day. The Society for the Encouragement of National Industry did give him another option, instead of writing an entire book. Alternatively, he could have taken out a patent. And that patent would probably have made him a very, very rich man. But I think the point there is that he looked that in the eye and said, the sort of person I am, I want everyone to to benefit. It actually suits my character better uh, to do that, to make sure that people's lives are improved rather than my pocket. So he opted to write a book. And he did it in two months flat. It's called The Book of All Households, is its short name. And its long name was uh, The Art of Preserving for Many Years All Animal and Vegetable Foods. The book explains how to preserve 34 different foods. Everything from asparagus, artichokes, and apricots to milk and gravy and jelly. Then he goes on to coach the reader through the process of opening them, each of them, back up again when it's time to serve. He wanted his readers to know that they could do this themselves if they wanted. And he sounds so patient, like the Bob Ross of reheating your preserved gravy. The bottle being well stopped up, I then fastened the cork down with a couple of iron wire crossed. This is an easy operation and anyone can do it who has once seen it done. He also emphasizes that his process could expand global trade and improve people's lives, basically everywhere. This invention cannot fail to enlarge the domain of chemistry and become the common benefit of all countries, which will derive the most precious fruit from it. His character was very generous. He was logical, he was systematic, he was thorough, he was dedicated, very single-minded. The impacts that Appert's work could have were clear in the society's official verdict, which, when I first read it, honestly made me cry a little. The society are of opinion that they are rendering a service to the country and humanity when they make known so useful a discovery with the eulogies which it merits. Accept, sir, the assurance of the perfect respect with which I have the honor to salute you. But ultimately, it wouldn't be enough. Appert got the one form of approval he'd sought, but fundamentally, he wanted to educate, not advertise. And that would come back to haunt him. The sad thing was that people would test it out. They'd leave his bottles for three months and then eat it and say how wonderful it was. And that would be it. Nobody would then place any orders. But there's another factor here that is coming into play by this time. And Bridget, I did not see this coming. Here's the kicker. Another man copied his process and got a patent for it. And he probably has a statue in front of a bigger clock tower. Honestly, probably. <laughs> Isn't this nuts? That's ridiculous. And it was someone it was someone else in France, too, who stole his idea. Quick off the mark, how can I make money out of this? I'll go and tell the English. Yes, that's right. The Frenchman who went over, his name isn't certainly known, but Giraud is probably his name, took Appert's book over and said, 
I can translate this for you, basically. I can tell you what it is. How much will you pay me? This imposter, because that's basically what he was, read Appert's writing. And this was the writing that Appert imagined people might read and make use of in their personal lives. And he pretended he'd come up with the ideas. This guy took it and said, hmm, this method is pretty brilliant, but it'd be even better if it used something that couldn't shatter. He swapped the glass bottles for tin cans, which made the premise both easier to sell and different enough from the original invention that, you know, who's to say if it's stolen? Well, and especially because Appair never got a patent. Exactly. And what feels particularly sinister about all of this is that this man carried it out in England, which is a place Appair had never even been. Not that without a patent himself, Appair was all that protected back in France. Bridget, I was livid. I feel like I can say that that's the right reaction to have, too, because it was the reaction Appert had, at least on the surface. Here's how he opens the fourth edition of his book in 1831. The first people to exploit my processes only did so based on an ill-informed Frenchman named Gérard, who took to London a copy of the first edition of my book. This lost me a hundred thousand francs in three years. He did remain mad. He definitely did. He was human. (laughs) He remained mad. The English factory making tin cans was looking like it would replace his work. Who would buy the preserves in a bottle when you can buy them in a tin? So much easier to store. He knew what was in the wind because as soon as he had got back to France, he started to work out how he could run his own tin smithy. Meanwhile, there's still an ongoing global war that the French Revolution set off. Remember that? And a foreign army had destroyed Appert's first factory. he just rebuilt when he heard about the imposter operation in England and traveled there to check it out. Then he got back to France and his new factory was destroyed. The Allies has destroyed, from top to bottom, my beautiful establishment in Massy. This time, the second time his factory was was sacked, it really was wrecked. And he had had no equipment. He had nothing. A few years later, the French government kind of takes pity and gives Appert some land for free for him to build a third factory. But that doesn't give him everything he needs because what he doesn't have is money. He'd taken what he had, plus the prize of 12,000 francs to fund and support his manufacturing. That was his asset. So with hardly anything liquid, getting more land couldn't really save him. And let's not forget that he was born in 1749. So he's in his late 60s at this point. And he's starting again. Then, eight years later, which means he's now 75 years old, as just an added sting the French government tries to charge him back pay for the land that they gave him. I thought, having arrived at 75 years of age, of a life completely devoted to science and humanity, to have nothing more than to die in peace with my family and friends. When you thought, my Lord, of having to remove me from the premises that I held of the magnificence of the government. I come, Lord, to you, to implore you to grant me a relief or a financial gift. 
I have sacrificed everything for humanity throughout my entire life. Appert didn't get much further after that. Obviously, since we still have preserved foods today, the practice became widespread. But the French government ultimately absorbed the preservation industry and directed the products toward the Navy. Oh, the irony. Uh, that was Appert's original intention, yes? Exactly. But it only happened after his time, once the world emerged from war. And packaging food in tin, per the English system, became the norm worldwide, which even further removes his name from the story. Feeling a little gloomy? I am. Especially now that we've spent all this time reliving his life, where he felt so layered and real, when we come back to the present, he's just flattened, if he's there at all. Our world has sped up. The news cycle is jam-packed. We have refrigeration. Nobody really thinks about Appair anymore, if they ever did. I do want to go back to that TripAdvisor page, though. The one I had you look up at the beginning of the story, Bridget. There was an entry, after all, for the bust of Appair. There could have been none. And there were a few pictures. But the people, 200 years later, who seem to be actually honoring the memory of Appair, are those who have links to him that are a little stronger than most. I think for me, the, of all our trips, the most exciting was actually the very first one. Uh, we went as a family on, on holiday, uh, first of all, to Chalon en Champagne, which is his birthplace. Yes, and there was a, that's where the bust of him was that was made in his lifetime. So it's an accurate life, um, presumably quite a good likeness of him. And our son, Eddie, was a teenager at the time and we stood him next to the bust and there was a real likeness you could see. It was quite striking. <laughs> Appert's story is a real story. As you piece him together, his life and the reasons we forgot it make sense. His partnership with the Navy doesn't play out. Someone gets the patent that he chose not to pursue. His factory gets destroyed. Twice. Folks who were more opportunistic or took action a little later in history, they were the ones who got the money, the recognition, the glory. Take Louis Pasteur, for instance who built on Appair's method in order to perfect pasteurization. This wasn't purely circumstantial. Sure, revolution, war, political imprisonment, that would have been trying for anybody. But Appair was especially vulnerable because he was pretty selfless for an inventor. Here's Stefan, the one who went to Nicholas Appair High School. He really thought of his product first as like something which could help people. I think that's very commendable that this is what he did. He was definitely interested in what his invention could bring to the world. It's a very interesting character, which also is a tragic character because of, his, of the end of his life. The way Appert got repeatedly knocked down erased him from the story. And his invention, even though it touches so many parts of our lives today, got kind of buried too. We're now living in a time with microwaves and delivery and fat-free half and half, and each prior invention gets buried deeper in the past. Lots of people say, well, I don't like tin food, do you? But um, it's really useful to have in the cupboard. Think of the pasta sauce, the pies. We take these tins just as a granted product. We have some in, the, in our cupboard somewhere. It's like, you know, we don't pay a lot of attention to it. And I think that's forgotten how revolutionary cunning was, actually. And... Maybe 
That's ultimately why we don't talk about Appert. Not only did his circumstances and personality not set him up for success, ultimately, he created something so revolutionary, so useful, that it's just become part of the fabric of our lives. Revolutionary at the turn of the 19th century meant seeing tomatoes at a time of year when you'd never normally see them. Eventually, revolutionary meant, and to this day it still means, convenience for people working long days. It means provisions for places that can't grow their own food. It means protection from spoilage, from food scarcity. Think about that. Aper wanted to change your life, and he did. Thanks to Aria Bracci for reporting the story. If you like Proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get brand new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Yumi Araki is our senior producer. Caroline Rickert is our producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton and Anya Jeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our line producer is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Today's episode featured the voice of Lucien Zayan as Nicholas Aper. Special thanks to Sam Fisher. Thanks again to our sponsors, Pete & Jerry's, Acorn TV, OXO, The Mango Board, Edible Arrangements, and Sitka Salmon Shares. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.